Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. February is the month of the Sacred Passion, and so we're going to be talking about devotion to the Passion, which of course is uh, most appropriate for Lent, and uh, we're going to focus um, in probably the next segment of our show on a particular devotion which is related to the Passion, and that is devotion to the Holy Face. Devotion to the Holy Face goes all the way back to the Middle Ages, and as we will discover, actually all the way back to Holy Scripture. So stay with us for that. In the meantime, uh, looking at the readings from last Sunday, the Sunday that began this week, first Sunday of Lent, in the uh, extraordinary form, it is called Invocabit. O Lord, who dost purify thy church by the yearly observance of Lent, grant to thy servants that what they endeavor to obtain of thee by abstinence they may secure by good works. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, This Sunday is called Invocabit from the first word of the introit. Um, I think, what do they call that in the the New Mass? The entrance antiphon, right? The introit is the the very first prayer of the church, uh, of the Mass, rather. And uh, all the Sundays of Lent and the Sundays of Easter are named from the first um, word of the introit. And the introit of this Sunday is taken from Psalm 90. He shall cry, invocabit, he shall cry to me, and I will hear him. I will deliver him and glorify him, I will fill him with length of days. He that dwelleth in the aid of the Most High shall abide under the protection of the God of heaven. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So, invocabit Sunday. And the epistle is taken from Second Corinthians um, chapter 6, verses 1-10. through 10. St. Paul says, As his co-workers, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have listened to you, and on the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We avoid placing obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. On the contrary, in everything we do, we present ourselves as ministers of God. In steadfast perseverance, in afflictions, hardships, and distress, in floggings, imprisonments, and riots, in labors, sleepless nights, and fasts, in purity, knowledge, patience, and kindness, in holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthfulness, and the power of God. We wield weapons of righteousness with right hand and left. In times of honor or dishonor, praise or insult, we are regarded as impostors, and yet we speak the truth as unknown men, and nevertheless we are well known, as dying, and behold, we live on, as scourged, but we are not put to death, as sorrowful, and yet we are always rejoicing, as poor, and yet we make many rich, as having nothing, and yet we possess everything. There's a lot in this little um, letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. A couple of things I want to point out. One thing he says, we wield weapons of righteousness with right hand and left. Now, you know, in, in well, really prior to the invention of gunpowder in, in the Western uh, martial tradition, you had in your right hand a sword and in your left hand a shield. Now, uh, the, you know, the knights of Europe that were on horseback had big shields that they had a strap around their neck to protect them. The, the Romans had... Uh, uh, centurions with, with uh, great shields, and they would build the famous shield wall. But the average soldier throughout our history into the Middle Ages had a small round shield. They, they would call it a, uh, 
well, a target, that's where the term target comes from because it, you know, you see the concentric circles. There's the, the uh, outer rim and then the shield proper. And then in the middle is something called the boss, which is like a half sphere right in the center. Uh, or it's called a buckler. And you'll see that in old translations of the scripture. They call it sword and buckler. And uh, <clears throat> it isn't just a, uh, a means of blocking blows, but actually a weapon itself. So you have your sword with which you can stab and, and cut and, you know, so forth. And then you have your shield that you use to parry blows, but also you punch with it because, that, because of that boss. It's like, a, you know, it's like the, <laughs> the ultimate brass knuckles or, or, or a big, uh, like a steel boxing glove. All right. So it was a, a defensive um, item, but we used it as a weapon. And that's why you say we use the weapons of righteousness in right hand and in left. And I always thought of the, the, the sword, you know, the sword of the spirit being evangelization, that you're there, you know, you're using that to, to spread the gospel in, into the world. And then that shield, of course, is, um, is apologetics, right? Apologetics is something that you use it to defend the faith, but it's also uh, something that, that can when necessary, go on the offense. So just that, that's not really an um, insight of the fathers or anything, but something struck me. Um, also, he says at the very end, we make many rich uh, as having nothing, yet we possess everything. When he says we make pe- them many rich, he's talking about the riches of, uh, of God, the supernatural treasures, uh, you know, because true wealth, we know, does not consist in worldly possessions, even if Believers have none of the world's goods. They possess, possess everything in Christ, who is Lord. As our, our Lord said, you know, lay not up to yourselves treasures of earth, you know, where the, the rust and moth, you know, uh, can destroy them, but lay up treasures in heaven. All right, also in the Catholic tradition, when you read the lives of the saints, and especially those who entered into religious life, you know, that, that discernment to give themselves over entirely to Christ is called their conversion. You know, even we're talking about people that are already Catholic and probably far more observant than, than we are, or, or at least I am. Still, we speak of their conversion, all right, this point when they give themselves entirely to God. You know, I was received into the Catholic Church um, as an adult, and so people refer to me as a convert. They ask me, can you tell me your conversion story? But the fact is, conversion is an ongoing process with many hurdles to overcome. And so when St. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, they were being beset by false teachers. There was confusion. There were those of them that had received the gospel, but were not living it, right? Just with paying lip service, but not to changing their lives. And so Paul encourages them by, you know, using the example of his own ministry. There's no time like the present. Now is the acceptable time to show themselves like him to be ministers, which is, you know, literally means servants of God. And again, like him in all conceivable situations, including the many hardships that he lists. So by offering us this epistle on Invocabit Sunday, the church is encouraging us to profit by Lent as a season of grace, to spend this uh, season earnestly combating sin by, you know, prayer and almsgiving and um, fasting and diligently performing good works, because now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. All right, and then the the Holy Gospel is taken from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, after which he was famished. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones 
to be made loaves of bread. Jesus answered, As it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Next the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the summit of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will raise you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is also written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Finally, the devil took him to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. Then he said to him, All these will I give you if you kneel down and worship me. Jesus said to him in reply, Begone, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil departed from him, and suddenly angels came and ministered to him. Our Savior was led by the Holy Ghost into the desert to prepare for his earthly ministry by fasting 40 days and nights. Uh, The devil, you can see, who is not certain of his identity, approaches and seeks to tempt him into betraying himself. And after Jesus had overcome the evil one, Scripture says that angels came and ministered to him. Now that word ministered literally means served. They served him. Um, Like when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Scripture says that she got up immediately and ministered to them, uh, and, and literally served them a meal, right? Uh, so the angels served Christ. They saw to his needs, including his hunger. And the point is, this is an encouragement for us to fight temptation as our Lord did to the very end, because in overcoming our temptations, we too will enjoy supernatural consolation and the assistance of the angels. Psalm 90 tells us he has given his angels charge over thee, that they may keep thee in all thy ways. God has appointed a guardian angel for each person, and we should pray to our guardian angel every day, and especially in times of temptation. And and that's the uh, the classic um, topic for this Sunday. The sermon topic is temptation. The inducement, uh, enticement, the, the seemingly attractive invitation to transgress the commandments of God. And temptation comes first from our own concupiscence, like we read in James 1.14. Temptation occurs when someone is attracted and seduced by his own desire. For, as St. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are opposed to the Spirit. Because even after we are washed clean of the guilt of original sin by baptism, the effects of sin remain. Uh, in our spiritual faculties, yes, our human will remains weakened, our human intellect is still darkened. We're still inclined to evil. I mean, if that weren't true, that, you know, we who know God would never sin. But the fact that we do sin <laughs> shows us in the first place that we're our own worst enemies. And then we're also tempted by the seductions of the world and by the devil. And the temptations of the world, I think, are only too obvious. So the question is, how does the devil tempt us? And we're going to answer that question when we come back. Also going to be talking about devotion to the Holy Face, devotion to the passion of our Lord here in this month of February, in this season of Lent. Um, And I hope that yours is going very, very well. And we will be right back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere. And we'll be right back after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We were talking about uh, temptation and the, asked the question, how does the devil tempt us? And the answer is that he moves our natural concupiscence, right, our inclination to sin, towards those sins that we are the most inclined to commit. And then he deceives and confuses the mind so that we can't clearly see the temporal loss or or the, the danger, the dishonor that will come from that sin. But he can't do anything except what God permits. St. Augustine compared uh, the devil to a chained dog that can only hurt you if you put yourself within his reach. Right? So that's the number, number one thing, is stay away. And the, there's also something that we must not say. And St. James talks about it in, in chapter 1, verse 13 of his epistle. He says, while experiencing temptation, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Right? So when you're tempted, it's not God. But he does allow us to be tempted and to suffer many trials. But he does not allow us to be tempted beyond our strength. And that's really what we're concerned about, isn't it? You know, thankfully, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, no trial has confronted you except what a person can stand. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tried beyond your strength. But together with the trial, he will also provide a way out and the strength to bear it. So what we have to do is to be um, certain not to consent, not to give in to temptation. And, and we give in to temptation by deciding of our own free will to do this evil thing that's been proposed. Right? So first off, don't dwell on your temptations. Oh, you know, it's like distraction is, is the good thing here. You know, you feel tempted, say a prayer, uh, you know, read some scripture, you know, double down on your work. Okay, the idle hands of the devil's playground, as my mother used to say. Okay, uh, as long as we resist, however weakly, we do not consent. And temptation is not sin. Now, best means to overcome temptation, the church tells us, number one, is humility and prayer. Understand that you're weak and ask for help uh, and from the one place you can get it, which is God. Uh, consider the suffering that follows from sin and the happiness of those who resist temptation. You're always better off and you know it. Um, again, invoking the aid uh, specifically in a moments of temptation of the Blessed Virgin Angel or, our, or, our Blessed Virgin Mary, rather, or our guardian angel. Or, or your patron saint, or, or your favorite, to pray devoutly, lead us not into temptation when you pray the Lord's Prayer, which you probably do several times a day. And finally, calling especially on the holy name of Jesus. Holy name of Jesus is a, a wonderful devotion all in itself. It is a wonderful prayer. Just the, the, the name Jesus is, is a indulgenced prayer. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is an indulgenced prayer. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph is an indulgenced prayer. Just calling upon the name of our Lord and um, the invocation of the saints, terrific way to help us overcome temptation. And speaking of uh, devotion to the holy name, that was something that was promoted uh, very vigorously by St. Bernard of Clairvaux back in the Middle Ages. And speaking of St. Bernard, he is the author of these words, 
Jesu, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. See, those lovely words express the fulfillment of a longing that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Right, Psalm 79, Convert us, O God, and show us thy face, and we shall be saved. In John's Gospel, we read that Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, it will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So devotion to the Holy Face goes all the way back to the earthly ministry of Christ, uh, described in, in the Holy Bible. And devotion to the Holy Face is right and just for the Catholic Christian. Because we know there's only you know, one person in Christ, right? He's, he's the God-man. He is divine and uh, has a divine nature and a human nature, but he's only one person. So when we adore his sacred heart or his holy face, we're not worshiping flesh and blood, but flesh and blood that is united to the divinity. Because in Christ, the human and the divine is inseparable. As uh, St. Benedict the Sixth, or not St. Benedict, I'm sorry, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth said, God has a face. And it's that of Christ. So devotion to the Holy Face, we've been talking about uh, February being the month of the Sacred Passion. Devotion to the Holy Face is linked to the Passion, specifically to the sixth station of the cross, right, where Jesus meets Veronica. Now, tradition tells us that as our Lord paused on the way of the cross, this woman stepped out of the crowd uh, with, with her veil and, and to wipe the blood from his face. And she was rewarded with an image of his holy face on the cloth. It became one of the venerable relics of Christendom, was passed down uh, from St. Peter to St. Clement and on to his successors and still resides in Rome today. Now, the name Veronica literally means true icon. So, Vellum Veronicae means the veil of the true icon or the veil of the true image. Now, but that term, which uh, I suspect began as a description of the relic itself, became conflated with the name of the woman, uh, and Vellum Veronica became Veronica's veil. But uh, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich tells us that the woman whose veil was imprinted with the holy face was actually named Seraphia. All right, and we call her Veronica. So devotion to the holy face really began in earnest in the Middle Ages uh, through St. Bernard of Clairvaux and through St. Gertrude and St. Mechtilde, and then later uh, St. Bonaventure. And it really became popular in the modern era, back in the 19th century, through a French Carmelite uh, nun and visionary, Sister Marie of St. Peter, or Marie de Saint-Pierre. Um, and it was also a... Uh, became a devotion or a favorite devotion of St. Therese, a little flower. And I think that did a great deal to um, promote the devotion to the Holy Face. It was also a favorite of uh, Blessed Pius IX. And he wrote a little offering to the Holy Face. Eternal Father, we offer thee the adorable face of thy well-beloved Son for the honor and glory of thy name and for the salvation of all men. Amen. So this devotion focuses on making reparation to the holy face of Jesus of the veil of Veronica, uh, specifically for sins involving the first three commandments, right? Those that have to do with God, the sins of blasphemy and the profanation of Sundays and holy days and, uh, and communism and sins against the Catholic faith. 
And yes, specifically communism. We'll talk about it in a sec. Uh, for blasphemy first is, is sin against the second commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And that would include, you know, the crude blasphemy of, of you know, swearing, taking the uh, irreverent use of God's name, speaking disrespectfully about holy things, uh, breaking vows. And then you have that doctrinal blasphemy, what, what it's called uh, by Pius the uh, Ninth, the free thinker, right? Uh, in other words, the, the modernist, hedonist, atheist, Freemason, etc. Um, so that's number one, blasphemy. Then violation and profanation of Sundays and holy days, which is a sin against the third commandment. Remember thou keep holy the Lord's day. And that includes missing mass on Sundays and holy days of obligation without grave or sufficient cause, performing undue servile work or unnecessary public buying and selling on those days. And then communism. You know, these others seem so generic and that seems so specific. But again, this is a sin against the second commandment. And it includes the crimes that were committed by the secret societies against Christ's church starting in the 18th century. Uh, in March of 1847, our Lord specifically identified the communists by name as his enemies. According to the Revelations of the Holy Face, uh, a little booklet by John Benari, Sister Marie Saint-Pierre writes, He has commanded me to make war on the communists, telling me that they are enemies of the church and of her Christ. Right? That's in 1847. Okay, so uh, our Lord looking ahead there. And sins against the Catholic faith. These would be sins generically against the first commandment. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. So it, that would include indifferentism, which is so rampant today, you know, essentially saying that all religions are the same. Um, you know, uh, differences in creed don't matter. Taking part in non-Catholic worship. All right? Heresy, which is to deny one or more of the dogmas of the faith. Apostasy, which is to deny the faith altogether. And then the sins of idolatry, superstition, occult practices, tempting God, sacrilege, all of those things violate the commandment. So this, this devotion is meant to make reparation for those sins, which are so prevalent in our society today, more so, I dare say, even than they were in the 1840s um, or in the Middle Ages, much less. So like, like um, the 15 promises that Our Lady gave to Blessed Alain de la Roche right, for praying the rosary— uh, there are likewise nine promises from our Lord to those who practice devotion to the Holy Face. And they were collated in the 1880s by the original propagators of the official devotion, right? That which was promoted by Marie St. Pierre. So the first two promises were given to St. Gertrude and St. Mactilde in the Middle Ages, and then the remaining seven given by our Lord to Sister Marie of St. Peter. Number one is given to St. Gertrude. They shall receive in themselves by the impression of my humanity, a bright irradiation of my divinity, and shall be so illumined by it in their inmost souls that by their likeness to my face they shall shine more than any others in eternal life. Number two, uh, given to St. Mactilde. St. Mactilde asked our Lord if those who celebrate the memory of his holy face should never be deprived of his amiable company. Our Lord replied, Not one of them shall be separated from me. Right, so that's a great... Uh, promise for this devotion. Number three, and these are from Sister Marie St. Peter, our Lord promised me that he will imprint his divine likeness on the souls of those who honor his most holy countenance. This adorable face is, as it were, the seal of divinity, which has the virtue of reproducing the likeness of God in the souls that are applied to it. 
Number four, by my holy face, they shall work miracles. By my holy face, you will obtain the conversion of many sinners. Nothing that you ask in making this offering will be refused to you if you knew how pleasing the sight of my face is to my Father. Number six, as in an earthly kingdom, you can procure all, your, all you wish with a coin marked with the prince's effigy. So in the kingdom of heaven, you may obtain all you desire with the precious coin of my holy humanity, which is my adorable countenance. Number seven, all those who honor my face in a spirit of reparation will, by so doing, perform the office of the pious Veronica. Number eight, according to the care you take in making reparation to my face disfigured by blasphemies, so will I take care of yours which has been disfigured by sin. I will reprint therein my image and render it as beautiful as it was on leaving the baptismal font. And then number nine, our Lord promised me that all those who defend his cause in this work of reparation, by words, prayers, or in writing, he will defend before his Father at their death. He will purify their souls by effacing all the blots of sin and will restore them to their primitive beauty. And that's no nonsense. You know what? There's another devotion to the Holy Face. We'll talk about that and more when we come back right after this. Welcome back. We're talking about devotion to the Holy Face and uh, specifically to the Veil of Veronica, that holy image. But there is another devotion to the Holy Face, similar but distinct, which is devotion to the face of Jesus of the Shroud of Turin. Now, for many years, the the, the two devotions have been conflated and and, uh, uh, um, confused as the same, right? and, And they are closely related. But there's two very distinct devotions both given by our Lord himself, and in two different centuries, right? So we have the Veronica Veil devotion being promoted in the 19th century, although we know it goes back, really, all the way to sacred scripture, and then the Shroud of Turin image in the 20th century. So, and through two different messengers. We have Sister Maria St. Peter, and uh, for the Shroud of Turin, Mother Maria Piarina, and in two different countries, right? France and Italy, in this case. Uh, And while both those devotions were introduced to make reparation, Right, that the the uh, purpose is the same. It's for two different types of sin. Right, the Veronica's veil, like uh, um, we we've seen, was you know reparation for uh, sins against the first three commandments, and we'll discuss uh, the intentions of the the Shroud of Turin image in a minute. But the devotions utilize two different sets of prayers uh, and means of making reparation, and two different days of the week. The Veronica veil uh, devotion is especially for Sundays and holy days. Right, because of the third commandment, um, and then um, Tuesdays for the Shroud of Turin, and finally they have two sets of promises given by heaven to perform or for performing these different devotions. The important similarity uh, between them is that they're both requests for making reparation by honoring the holy face of Jesus, but they're two images, two different images of the holy face. The images of the veil of Veronica was imprinted during the Passion, while our Lord was still alive, whereas the image on the Shroud of Turin was obtained after his death, and I believe uh, at the moment of his resurrection. Now, naturally, uh, a faithful Catholic is not going to see any contradiction or opposition between these two devotions, which, on the contrary, complement each other quite beautifully. Uh, The chosen messenger of God for the devotion of the holy face of the Shroud of Turin 
was Mother Maria Piorina di Michelli, a religious sister in the Conrad of the Immaculate Conception in Rome. Uh, and the Immaculate Conception, that's also for me personally, that has a uh, um, many connections, Our Lady of Good Success and Our Lady of America, as well as Our Lady of Lords, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, you know, the Immaculate Conception has just done Scottish, all these various influences in my personal uh, faith journey, uh, all coming together around that, that same doc, uh, dogma. Anyway, uh, on the first day of Lent in 1936, uh, Mother was praying in the chapel of the convent, and Jesus appeared to her and uh, said to her, I desire that my face, which reflects the deep anguish of my soul and the sorrow and love of my heart, be more honored. He who contemplates me consoles me. And our Lord appeared to her repeatedly with the same request. And on Tuesday of Passion Week in 1936, he said, Each time my face is contemplated, I will pour my love into hearts, and through my holy face many souls will be saved. And then in 1938, again praying in the chapel, the uh, Blessed Virgin appeared to Sister Piorina, Mother Piorina, holding a scapular made from two pieces of white flannel joined by a cord. And on one side is the image of the Holy Face, right, from the shroud image of the Holy Face. Uh, and with words surrounding the images, Illumina Domine Vultum Tuum Super Nos. Let thy face shine upon us, O Lord. And on the other side was an image of the Sacred Host, Right, the Holy Eucharist, surrounded by rays of light and the words, Mane nobiscum domine, stay with us, O Lord. It's one of those things I think about, um, you know, before the Lord ascended into heavens, he said, Behold, I shall be with you all days, even unto the consummation of the world. I believe that's what he's talking about, is the Holy Eucharist. That is how he stays with us. Um, and so, Blessed Virgin told Mother Piorina, the scapular is a weapon of defense. And we talked about shield the buckler being used as a weapon, a weapon of defense, a shield of strength, a pledge of love and mercy which Jesus wishes to give to the world in these times of sensuality and hatred against God and the church. Diabolical snares are being laid to tear the faith from men's hearts and evil spreads. True apostles are few. A divine remedy is necessary, and this remedy is the holy face of Jesus. All those who shall wear a scapular like this, and then later the Blessed Virgin told her that they could use a medal instead of the scapular. Um, all those who wear the scapular or the medal uh, and will make, if possible, a visit to the Blessed Sacrament every Tuesday in reparation for the outrages that the holy face of my son received during his passion and which he receives daily in the Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. Will, and then follow the promises. Uh, before we get to that, I, I just need to say here, you know, uh, again, this is the, in the 1930s, the sacrileges against the Holy Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament, have multiplied exponentially since the middle of the 20th century, largely, and I'm sorry, I know that it's, I know that it's permitted, I'm not, uh, I'm in sales, not in management, but communion in the hand. The opportunity for sacrilege has was multiplied, like I say, exponentially. And uh, and for why I understand, uh, I've heard the intellectual reasons why that, why it was allowed. Um, but I think that we've seen what's happened, and maybe it's time to reverse course. Just saying. Anyway, uh, for those who will make reparation uh for the the insults that the holy face received in the passion that the holy eucharist receives daily uh 
uh, will be. Uh, oh, and by the way, I uh, I'm wearing one of those little medals right now. And you can see it's gold. It has the shroud image on one side with the words we talked about, and on the other side, the image of the Blessed Sacrament, the uh, consecrated host. And, uh, and it's rendered in gold, typically, and gold color. I mean, it's not real gold. And it's interesting to me that St. Jude um, is also, you know, you look at a holy card, you see him pictured with a gold medallion with the face of Jesus on it. And these things are connected because um, this is a, a, a gold coin or a gold medal with an image uh, medallion with the image of the shroud uh, image the, the face of Jesus and the medallion that Jude in, in the holy cards is carrying represents the shroud of Turin because it was in the care of St. Jude and it was referred to uh, in the early centuries as the mandillion which means not made by hands right it's that image a miraculous image of our Lord and so, you know, to have that gold coin with the shroud image on it was very appealing to me, as are th- these promises. First, uh, those who would wear this medal and, and uh, do the devotion will be strengthened in faith. Two, they will be prompt in the defense of the faith. Boy, and that's something I need to be able to do. Number three, they will overcome all difficulties, internal and external. And number four, be granted a peaceful, holy death under the loving gaze of my divine Son. Short, sweet, and I can't ask for anything more. So devotion to the holy face of the Shroud of Turin, very simple. You pray five glory bees every day to console our Lord and make reparation for the outrages which his holy face received during the Passion and which he continues to receive every day in the Blessed Sacrament. You wear the Shroud medal, which you can get online or at, you know, at Catholic gift shop, and if possible on Tuesday, make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament, which is a good thing to be doing in this year uh, you know, these years, I should say, leading up to the Eucharistic revival here in the United States. Our Lord told Mother Maria Pierina, I desire that my face, which reflects the deep anguish of my soul and the sorrow and the love of my heart, be more honored. He who contemplates me consoles me. Each time my face is contemplated, I will pour my love into hearts, and through my holy face, many souls will be saved. Church teaches us, Salus animorum suprema lex. The salvation of souls is the supreme law. Unfortunately, there are many spheres in the church today where the salvation of souls doesn't even seem to be on the radar, much less the, the primary concern. And this devotion is another way for lay people, simple individual believers, to console our blessed Lord and to help save souls. Uh, Blessed Pius IX was devoted to the holy face of Jesus of the Vale of Veronica and said reparation is the work destined to save society. Society, you know, she said, not the church. The church too, but but society. We're gonna we're gonna save the world through these acts of reparation because of all the outrages that we have uh, as a society, uh, uh, you know, committed uh, on our Lord. And um, I told you he composed that short offering of the adorable face of Jesus. So a beautiful, beautiful devotion and one that I highly recommend. I really like the the Shroud of Turin devotion because of the simplicity of it and uh, this very striking uh, metal, this striking image that, uh, I mean, that connects you to the whole thing, to the Shroud and its history 
and to the passion of our good Lord and to reparation for the many outrages that he suffers, uh, not only in his passion, but daily in uh, sacrileges against his presence, his real presence in the Blessed Sacrament, in the Holy Eucharist. Okay, when we come back, February is the month of the Sacred Passion, and we're going to be talking about devotion to the Passion. And uh, before we go, I'm going to I whet our whistle, whet our whistle, yes, not wet, but whet, uh, with this prayer for the Sacred Passions, prayer for February. Dear Lord Jesus, by your passion and resurrection, you brought life to the world. But the glory of the resurrection came only after the sufferings of the passion. You laid down your life willingly and gave up everything for us. Your body was broken and fastened to a cross. Your clothing became the prize of soldiers. Your blood ebbed away slowly but surely, and your mother was entrusted to the beloved disciple. Stretched out on the cross, deprived of all earthly possessions and human aid, Racked with pain and burning with fever, you cried out to your Father that the end had come. You had accomplished the work given you, and you committed into his hands as a perfect gift what little life remained to you. Lord, teach me to accept all afflictions after the example you have given. Let me place my death in you and my weakness in your abandonment. Take hold of me with your love, that same love that knew no limits, and let me offer myself to the Father with you so that I may rise with you to eternal life. Amen. All right, back with more on devotion to the sacred passion of our Lord when No Nonsense Catholic returns right after this. Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We have been talking about February being the month dedicated to the sacred passion of our Lord. And of course, during Lent, we Catholics are called to meditate upon the passion of our Lord, upon the events from his agony in the garden until the, uh, his death on the cross. And when I was preparing uh, this segment, I, I kind of wondered how, how do I get into the topic and, uh, you know, can I do some kind of overview of the Passion? Should I go to the Scriptures and try and collate the biblical account or, you know, make a bullet list of the events in order uh, uh, that they happened? Or, you know, where to begin was my question. And I ran across a prayer that I think I originally saw on the Catholic News Agency website and um, copied down, you know, uh, I don't remember when, but uh, and I think it was up there recently. But they give up, uh, the source is catholicexpert.com. But that URL, it's, it's, you know, it's dead. It doesn't go anywhere, so I don't know what happened to that website. And I don't know who composed this prayer, so I can't give them credit. But it encapsulates, encapsulates the various events of our Lord's sufferings, and, but in the form of a prayer, calling for his mercy. And it is called the Prayer in the Steps of the Passion. So I made a little slideshow, and if Richie, if you'll cue that up, we'll show that to you now. The uh, Prayer in the Steps of the Passion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Prayer in the Steps of the Passion Most dear Jesus, filled with sorrow during the agony in the garden, covered with a sweat of blood while praying, have mercy on us. Most dear Jesus, delivered into the hands of the wicked by a kiss, bound like a robber, 
and abandoned by your disciples, have mercy on us. Most dear Jesus, condemned to death by an unjust counsel, taken as an evildoer before Pilate, and ridiculed by the wicked Herod, have mercy on us. Most dear Jesus, publicly shorn of your garments, and most cruelly scourged at the pillar, have mercy on us. Most dear Jesus, crowned with thorns, beaten and blindfolded, clothed in rich purple and mocked, have mercy on us. Most dear Jesus, likened to the infamous Barabbas, rejected by your people, and unjustly sentenced to death, have mercy on us. Most dear Jesus, burdened with the weight of the cross and led to the place of execution like a lamb to the slaughter, have mercy on us. Most dear Jesus, reckoned with the wicked, blasphemed and derided, and given gall to drink, have mercy on us. Most dear Jesus, dying on the cross in the presence of Mary, pierced with a lance that drew blood and water from your side, have mercy on us. Most dear Jesus, taken down and placed in the arms of your sorrowful mother, have mercy on us. Most dear Jesus, horribly bruised and marked with five wounds, anointed for burial and placed in a tomb, have mercy on us. My Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Have mercy on us. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so there it is, the prayer in the steps of the Passion. You can see that it really <clears throat> lays out uh, all the events of the Passion from the Agony until uh, the burial of Jesus. And uh, for those of you listening via audio, I, I did make a little slideshow for that. Last night I threw together that presentation with a, a little narration and a, a slideshow featuring um, images uh, from Jean-Jacques Tissot for the uh, the biblical series that he did. And he actually did it in the Holy Land. They're quite striking. And um, actually not paintings. A lot of people uh, misidentify them as paintings. It's those images were actually made with colored pencil, so uh, quite a quite an achievement. And um, like I say, if you're listening audio only, you can go um, and uh, view it on Rumble. The people that are watching on Rumble have already seen it, or uh, it'll be posted later on the vmpr.org website. And you can always go, you click on our shows and then go down to No Nonsense Catholic, and it will be the latest entry, and you can uh, watch it there. All right. Um, in the time remaining, I want to talk a little bit about devotion to the Passion. And um, I'm taking this, uh, what I'm going to share, largely from uh, a book by Father Paul O'Sullivan called An Easy Way to Become a Saint. Uh, you may be familiar with uh, Father O'Sullivan. He wrote a series of books and booklets back in the 1940s, I believe. Um, and they've become modern classics, especially the little booklets. Uh, um, what is it? How to Avoid Purgatory. The Wonders of the Holy Name, The Wonders of the Holy Mass. These have become uh, Read Me or Rue It, right? And he also has books like all about the angels, How to Be Happy, How to Be Holy, which I probably read once a year because it is, you know, it's that good. And uh, an easy way to become a saint. And the thing about him is that he's joined um, that cadre of, of terrific spiritual writers from the 19th and 20th century, like Mother Mary Loyola and Father Faber and uh, Monsignor Robert U. Benson, uh, Bishop Sheen, of course, uh, uh, as somebody who recognizes and can articulate in a way that's uh, appealing and, and uh, comprehensible, you know, to the average layperson, that the path to sanctity, the path to salvation, 
Okay, the road to heaven uh, is one of ordinary devotion and prayer, and that it is quite open to the regular Catholic. That, it, that you don't need to do anything extraordinary to live a life of love for Christ and for Our Lady and for the Church. That you can, you know, go to heaven through many, what he says, easy and infallible means. All right, so uh, we come to that subject, you know, uh, he says, uh, a subject that pen cannot adequately describe, the sufferings of our dear Lord. He says, who could have imagined the possibility of God suffering, despised, crucified? Who could have saved, he who could have saved us by one word as he created us, why then did he subject himself to such awful humiliations, such agonies of pain, to that most ignominious of deaths, meted out only to the greatest malefactors, crucified between two thieves, mocked and blasphemed by his enemies? One drop of his precious blood would have saved a thousand worlds. Why then did our sweet Lord suffer such pain and degradation? Simply to prove the infinite sincerity of his love for us. And we, careless, insensible, thoughtless, blind, remain unmoved at the sight of all he did for us. We look on our crucifix and feel no pity for our crucified Lord. We look on the stations of the cross and feel no answering sorrow stir our hearts. He did all that God could do to constrain our love, but our coldness, our incredible blindness, nullifies all that his divine love did to gain our affection. Worse still, by our sins, the apostle tells us, we crucify again the Son of God and make a mockery of him. The Jews had been waiting and praying for the coming of our Lord for 4,000 years. The prophets, one after another, foretold the principal facts of his life. He himself then came and worked astounding miracles to prove that he was God. But at the sight of his sufferings, the Jews were scandalized. They could not believe that God could suffer. The Gentiles, although they saw the wonders that were wrought, were no less incredulous. They called it madness to say that God would submit to such outrages. We know and believe that he is God, that he suffered and died for each one of us, yet we are more guilty than the Jews and Gentiles um, from the Bible days, for we remain hard and ungrateful at the sight of all that Jesus has done for us. Why do not our hearts burn with love for him? Because we do not trouble to think on the passion. We do not ponder it. We do not love it. <clears throat> what must we do? Clearly, we must honor and love the passion. The following are very easy ways of doing so. And that, of course, is the hallmark of Father O'Sullivan, the ease of these means to become holy and save our souls. He says, we honor the passion, number one, by making the sign of the cross. We make the sign of the cross very often. Let us make it slowly and reverently. Made reverently, it gives great honor to God. Made hastily, it insults God and is a kind of parody of the passion. So let us remember each time we make the sign of the cross that first we offer the passion and death of Jesus Christ to the Eternal Father and that we thank our Lord for dying for us on the cross, and that we offer the infinite merits of the passion for our own souls and for the salvation of the world. That's what's happening every time you make the sign of the cross. So, as Father O'Sullivan says, make it reverently. 
make it with the understanding that that's what you're doing. Because each time we make the sign of the cross in that way, we console the heart of Jesus and we obtain pardon for our sins and we help to save the world from the great evils that beset it. It's worth taking a time to make a reverent sign of the cross, isn't it? It says, number two, by repeating the holy name of Jesus. We talked earlier about uh, the holy name of Jesus being itself an indulgence prayer and its practice going all the way back through the Middle Ages to the early church. Because St. Paul tells us, Jesus merited his name by his passion and death. Therefore, when we say the name Jesus, we should have the intention of offering the passion and death of Jesus Christ to the Eternal Father in union with all the masses being said all over the world. What a huge wellspring of grace that you can tap into with that one word. Number three, by kissing our crucifix. I wear a crucifix around my neck. It's actually a pardon crucifix that was uh, um, indulgenced by St. Pius X. And kissing the crucifix carries an indulgence with it. He says, uh, Father O'Sullivan says, we should kiss a crucifix, especially after morning and evening prayers, before and after saying our rosary. Uh, number four, by saying, speaking of the rosary, by saying the five sorrowful mysteries of the rosary and asking Our Lady to give us a great love for the passion. We thus honor the passion of our Lord and the sorrows of Our Lady. And it's interesting that I noticed in my prayer book, and even in a, in a modern prayer book, that it says to, um, you know, you say, these uh, mysteries on Mondays and Wednesdays and these on th- Tuesdays and Thursdays and um, the, the sorrowful mysteries, of course, on Tuesdays and Fridays, I should say, but also through all the weekdays of Lent that you be devoted to that passion of our Lord this way. And then uh, number five, by making the way of the cross, which, uh, you know, to gain the indulgence, you need to do that in a church, but there's no special prayers or anything that you need to to say. And we'll talk about this next week, the Stations of the Cross, and what a beautiful devotion it is, um, and especially for this time of year. Well, you know, I can't believe that an hour has gone by already, but it has. And so I want to say thank you so much for listening. I want to say thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I want to encourage you to visit our website, uh, uh, vmpr.org, where you can find out all about everything that's going on. Make a donation if you're able. We sure do appreciate it. And Lent is a time for almsgiving. And, uh, I just want to say until next time, thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.